we have a very special night. We're going to do a Q&A for our entire sermon. This is going to be really fun. And so if you have questions that you want to have asked, you can text them into this number up here on the screen, or you can write them down and hand them to Andrew. Andrew is going to be back there at a table behind the sound booth. So there's paper and there's pencils, and you can write down a question, hand it to him, and it will get um, it'll sort of get into the queue for being asked. So that's what you can do with that. Other than that, if you have more things you want to know about our church, you can always check out the bulletin and also keep all of our ministries covered in prayer. So now, without further ado, I am going to invite our beloved and wonderful Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy up on the stage. Welcome, you guys. Thank you, thank you. All right, this is fantastic. I assume those volunteers are for the food shelf, but you know, they... They need volunteers for the food shelf. Uh, we have a daycare that we're running here, and they can use volunteers there. Uh, if you're willing to volunteer, we can use you. So, uh, you know, wherever it applies, uh, step up. Be part of that. But the food shelf uh, is, is definitely one of those areas. So, yeah, this is a, a, a cool thing. We uh, did this last year. Uh, took a couple of the services during the summertime and just turned it all into a Q&A. I think some of the best uh, education, actually, I think the best education happens when folks are, are asking questions and just kind of pulling it out of us. Um, and so, as was said, if you've got questions, uh, you can text them that number that was on the board, or if you don't have a texting device, a phone or whatever, uh, you can write them out on a piece of paper, and Andrew, that stunningly good-looking guy who's uh, behind... Don't worry, Steve, they won't mistake it for you. Uh, the guy, guy behind <laughs> it... <laughs> I love you, Steve. Uh, just bring it back there, and he'll uh, uh, text it up to uh, Vanessa, and we'll have a go of it there. All right, so should be good. All right, so bring okay. it on. Okay, your first question. If judgment is the opposite of Christ-like love, then what does Jesus' righteous judgment look like? If judgment... Yeah, Greg. This is Paul. He's always this is his little stick. Yeah, Greg. We can say about that. Well, Paul, why don't you take a swing at it? I've been preaching on, on judgment here for so long. It's I tell you, it's time for you continue, to weigh in on this. Continue. All right. Uh, look at the the uh, the kind of judgment, and I've mentioned this a few times uh, in in, in the, these messages that we've been having on uh, on love and judgment. Um, and I, I, I am thinking I'll have one more message on this where I'll address this in particular because it's important. But there's the word judgment in Scripture is used in two distinct senses. Um, there's the kind of judgment that, that Jesus prohibits, James prohibits, Paul prohibits. You, you find us condemned. And it's the kind of judgment that I have argued is uh, the foundational sin of the Bible, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the root of the word for judgment means to separate. Crino is the word. We get the word critic from it. A critic is one who separates uh, good films from bad films and things of that sort. So there's a good kind of separation and a bad kind of separation. The bad kind of separation, the kind that Jesus and Paul and James condemn, uh, is where you separate yourself from another. And you do it in order to stand apart from them and above them to feed off of them. That's where you, Instead of ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself, which is what... Uh, Calvary like love looks like, what kingdom love looks like, the kind of love that God is, uh, ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. Now, in judgment, you're doing the opposite. You're ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. 
However bad you may be, well, at least you're not like that person, and you're feeding yourself. And that's the kind of judgment that is always prohibited. The kind of judgment that is, is good and necessary is when you separate things. Uh, good things from bad things, healthy things from unhealthy things, and all of that. And uh, this is the sense in which I think Jesus' judgment is, is righteous. Uh, as I put everything together uh, in Scripture about the end times... Um, it's, it's just the day of truth. The light turns on. Uh, whatever's been done in secret is, is declared from the housetop. It's, it's, it's the time where whatever's real is going to be made real. And that's where uh, people will be revealed whether they are uh, in, a part of the kingdom or not. Whether they have a Godward heart or a selfward heart. And that's what separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, this is, Jesus isn't at all feeding off of people or, or contrasting himself with them. He's simply saying, here's what is true. Here's what is true. And the, the, everything that is compatible with the character of God as defined on Calvary, the love of God defined on Calvary, uh, that is welcomed into the kingdom. Uh, everything that can be made right with it is purified by the fire of God's love, and everything that's not is, is uh, burned away, burned up. Because to be in the presence of that kind of love in a state that won't receive it, well, that's just what happens to you. And so I think uh, Jesus' judgment is righteous and just. But it's very different than our uh, kind of judgment when we feed off of people by contrasting with them. Anything that? Nice job. He likes it. All right. I got one thumbs up. Um, In regards to spiritual warfare, why does God allow Satan and the powers to reign on earth? Why doesn't he put a stop to their reign now? Good question. I think... uh, Anyone who takes spiritual warfare seriously has to sort of entertain that question at some point. If God really is God, if Satan and God aren't like sort of competing gods, but God really is God, the sovereign Lord who has omnipotent power, why doesn't he just stop this whole cosmic battle thing? And um, I think we've got to look for the answer in everything with God with regard to theological issues is, is the character of God and particularly the love of God. And when you want love, then part of what you've got to put up with is free will. Greg's hit that a lot at this church. Because without the freedom to go this way or that way, to love or not love, you really don't have then love. You've got something that turns out to be some kind of robot or automaton. See, the same principle applies to Satan and the fallen angels. And so when God gave this being that we call Satan who originally was a good angel and was supposed to be like Michael or Gabriel or the other good angels, was supposed to be serving and loving God, that freedom to do that was also a freedom to go the opposite direction, which, of course, Satan chose. And uh, the day will come when God puts to rest all, all cosmic battle. But until the day when God is ready to sort of wrap up all of human history, he's got to let the enemy's free will play out just like he has to let our free will play out in our lives. And so now as to when that day will be and why God's going to pick the day he's going to pick to stop all of history and wrap it up, we don't know. But whatever that reason is, it's, it's got to be a good and loving reason. Whatever the reason the battle is extending, I know that in, in 2 Peter 3 it says that part of the reason God is, is not uh, having the day come too quick is to let the opportunity for more people to respond to the gospel. So there's probably a variety of reasons why God hasn't stopped the battle yet. But we know that whatever lies behind that reason, it's about freedom for the purpose of love 
And it's about God wrapping up all of history for his purposes. You know, it's a, a really important point because here's the thing. When you're talking about the evil in the world, it's always important to, to, when you think about the evil in the world to let yourself be hit by it so you're not thinking just theoretically or abstractly. Uh, think about a particular uh, tragedy, uh, a child being kidnapped and raped or, or some, some, some kind of atrocious evil. So it's not just a theoretical thing. And when you think about that particular evil, you either have to say that God just chooses not to intervene and stop that, or you have to say he can't. And since we hold that God is all-powerful, and rightly so, because Scripture teaches that, we have a hard time saying he can't. So then people say, well, then he just chooses not to. But they see, the minute you say that he just chooses not to, well, then... But since God's all good, he must have a good reason, right? Everything he does is for the best. So then it would follow that it's for the best that this little kid got kidnapped and raped and murdered. Or whatever atrocity that you have. And, and that, this is what makes uh, theism so unpalatable to so many people. Because you have a God up there who's just saying, no, I choose not to intervene. I could, but I choose not to. Well, I, I, we, we're, we're suggesting there's another way of thinking about this. And that is that, yes, God's got the power to do anything he wants. True. But with every decision God makes about what kind of creation he wants, uh, he sets in motion other implications. If God's going to create a triangle, it can't be round. And if God's going to create a bachelor, he can't be married. Okay, there's implications to everything. For every this that God decides to create, it can't be a that. And so, because the two are contradictory. And so if God creates beings with free will, with different degrees of of say-so, ranging from archangels who've got a lot of say-so over the cosmos to we human beings who've got just a little bit of say-so. And it may be that, that other animals have, have a, a degree of say-so, but it's even smaller. But to the degree that he's given us this say-so, it's the power to go this way to that degree or that way to that degree. And if he gives us this power, he can't revoke it because if he revoked it, then he clearly didn't give it to us. If he gives us the power to go this way or that way, to this degree or to that degree, then by definition, he has to let us go that way to that degree. Because if he doesn't, then he just reveals that he didn't really give us the power to go this way or that way, to this degree or that degree. See, it's no different than saying a a triangle's got to have three uh, straight sides. It can't be round. And so when God gives Satan... Uh, a degree of say-so that he could have used for magnificent good for eons and eons, or he could have used it, and unfortunately this is how it went down, uh, he uses it for evil for eons and eons. If he's genuinely given him that say-so, he can't revoke it. This is why now he's got to work around it. That's why the Bible highlights God's wisdom as much as it highlights God's power, maybe even more so. Because you only need wisdom if you genuinely have to problem solve and work around things. And God is described as a wise God who's working around things. He can't just unilaterally call it off. He's got the power to, but if he did that, he'd make it clear that he didn't really create a creation where Satan has, and we have, and every free agent has, a a degree of say-so to go this way or that way. And so God can't intervene. Now, there's all sorts of variables. Like, there's, there's a prayer makes a difference on this. And, and what we do with our free will makes a difference on this. And, and all sorts of things like that. But if it's just about God and this child here, uh, I, I don't think you can just decide to call that off because of what's built into the nature of free will. I just gave you the complex version of what Paul gave you earlier. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Thanks for that. Right, we talk about this in uh, uh, my book, Satan and the Problem of Evil and Is God to Blame, both address... 
uh, that, that, that issue, and it's a very, very important issue. I don't think you can adequately solve the problem of evil uh, without that. Uh, it's, can, either God won't or he can't. Thank you, Greg. That was very comprehensive. Thank you. I try. I try. I aim to please. <laughs> and just to remind everyone, again, there are pencils and paper behind, right there behind that camera on the table and then behind the sound booth also. So if you have a question, please feel free to write one down. Your next question is, when did dinosaurs roam this planet and how old is the Earth? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're not biologists. Well, last I read, it was like uh, 250 million years ago. Uh, when, when did the uh, paleontological... Uh, what was the era that... Who's a biologist here knows when that... <laughs> I, I don't know when, when exact dates are, but I, on this, I, I, you know, here's what's behind the question. is I think they're asking, to what degree are you going to buy the scientific account or the biblical account? And um, for my two cents, Paul will weigh in with his two cents, but uh, as I see it... I, I, if church history teaches us anything, it's that we shouldn't declare war on a consensus in science uh, unless you have to. Uh, if there's a way of, of interpreting the scripture in a way that accommodates the scientific consensus on something, I would go with that way of, of, of doing it. And as, as I see it, there's no problem at all reconciling uh, the biblical teaching on creation and all of this with the uh, established scientific view that the earth is is uh, 4.6 billion years old, and the dinosaurs were around uh, some 250 uh, million years ago, and longer before that, um, and um, then humans are a fairly recent creation after that. So I, I go with this science in this one. What's your view, Paul? Yeah. And I, behind this question, um, at least for some people, is, is sort of this uh, other question, like, do you really believe the Bible? Right? I honestly don't. I mean, <laughs> just kidding. Do you really believe Genesis 1? And uh, for, the, for folks who hold to a young earth position, which is basically that you take the genealogies in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 5, basically from Abraham back to Adam, and you can kind of add those up within a rough span of time, then you add seven 24-hour period days, well, you come up with about 4004 B.C., according to one person's calculations some years back. And then there's this sort of sense that, well, if you say the earth is older than 4004 B.C., that means you don't believe the New Testament. You're a liberal. The Old Testament, yeah. And liberal. the thing is that the, early, the, the church, back to the early church, has always had differences of opinion on how to interpret that first chapter of Genesis. Some have always thought it's a, it's a little 24-hour series of days. But even in the early church, there were people saying, no, that's long periods of time. Because the, the word yom, that we translate as day, can also be used just like it can in English, where I could say to you, today I'm going to the store, in which you'd assume in this 24-hour period, but I could also say to you, in the day of the dinosaur, which you wouldn't think is 24 hours, but a long period of time. The, the word yom in Hebrew has the same flexibility, so you have to see how it's being used in context. So some will say, well, clearly that's long periods of time, not, not 24-hour periods. And then, actually, Greg holds a third view that he talks about in in God at War, and there's a fourth view that I'm actually inclined to called Literary Framework that says uh, something beyond that. So there's different ways that Christians have interpreted Genesis chapter 1. What three of those views have in common, the, the four major view, ways of looking at Genesis 1, three of those ways have in common that you can reconcile that with an old earth, including what science today says about dinosaurs. 
Uh, the only view that can't be reconciled to that very easily is the young earth view that holds to a very strict 24-hour period uh, on, those seven, on those seven days. I, the most important thing about this question, I think, is that uh, whatever your view is, um, I, 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 I get so grieved when I hear about, and I have just heard about this recently, people who uh, don't take Christianity seriously or won't take Christianity seriously or were taking Christianity seriously but now aren't, because they came to the conclusion that, uh, that the, the, there's at least something to evolutionary theory and the age of the earth and the dinosaurs and all that. And they were taught that, as I was taught when I was first a Christian, that if the Genesis 1 story isn't a literal account, then the whole Bible is a book of lies. Well then, you get convinced that there's something to the scientific establishment and then you throw the whole Bible out. And I think it's absolutely tragic. Um, this is one of those areas where, uh, whatever your view is, um, I mean, if you hold the young earth, fine, God bless you, but, but uh, do not put it as an obstacle for people getting in the kingdom. I, uh, um, I, I just think it's so tragic. As though Jesus on the cross, when the thief says, can I be with you today in paradise? And Jesus says, well, first, you must answer this question, how old is the earth, and when were the dinosaurs here? <laughs> I, no, don't, don't, we, we shouldn't be putting these kind of obstacles in, in, in front of, and it also, I think, really harms the credibility of uh, the gospel in, in front of thinking people when you just have a knee-jerk re- reaction where you re- reject the whole scientific establishment. I lost my faith for a whole year when I first went to college, largely on that question. Because I was just taught, if, if it's not a literal, it's all a book of lies. My first class in college was a course on the introduction to evolutionary biology. And I went in there and I had read my three books on creationism and I was all loaded up. I was going to refute the professor and save the class. And it didn't quite work out that way. And by the end of the class, my faith was just reeling and before long I lost the whole thing. And now looking back on it, it was entirely unnecessary. All right. I have two questions that go together. This question says, I know that there are verses in the New Testament that many believe teach that all expressions of homosexuality are sin. I'm a committed Bible-believing Christian, but I personally don't interpret these verses to rule out faithful, monogamous, homosexual relationships. I was made to feel that I should leave my previous evangelical church for expressing this conviction, and I welcome at Woodland Hills when I hold this view. And a related question is, can there be a one-flesh reality reality or one flesh relationship between a homosexual couple i wanted to give you an easy question yeah (laughs) all right this is uh it's a good question and it's a really important question and it's obviously a question that the church uh, i think in in the days and years to come is going to have to deal with more and more uh straightforwardly um particularly you know, in Minnesota with, with the law change and things. That this is a question that the church has to engage, I think, in a new way. Um, so let me, let me start, and you can jump in with, with what you think, and if it aligns with what I'll I think, correct you. you'll be right. <laughs> so um, so three, yeah, there's, there's three verses um, in the New Testament that, uh, depending on who you are and where you could have stand on this debate historically, are the, either the... The verses that show homosexuality is wrong, or the verses I've heard some folks in the GBLT community call them the clobber verses that Christians use to beat them up with. The clobber verses. Um, it's, it's a verse in 1 Timothy, a verse in 1 Corinthians 6, and a verse in Romans 1 that talk about, at least a lot of people think, talk about homosexuality. Um, others, in fact, increasingly uh, um, 
brothers and sisters in the faith, Christians who really, as this person said, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, um, have begun to ask the question, is that really what, what these three texts are about? Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a debate within the church about, about this issue. Um, I guess I'd start by saying this. I think every church is going to have to wrestle with these texts, and we at Woodland Hills have wrestled with these texts. We wrestled with these for a number of years. I think Greg and I have had a lot of personal conversation. Our pastors as a team have. We're still wrestling with them. Yeah, it, it's uh, continue to wrestle. Uh, we don't think that this question should be settled on three verses, though. As we read Scripture, and you know, everyone's in process, we're always seeking God for more wisdom, but as we read Scripture, we see a pattern through Scripture that starts in Genesis 1, kind of the beginning of God's story, and moves through to the end, where God's ideal for sexuality is to function as the covenant sign, uh, so covenant relationship is a very important category here, the covenant sign of uh, a male-female covenant relationship. That's how we see Scripture taught. And for us, theology has to be grounded in Scripture. Otherwise, it's thrown open to whatever you think or I think or culture happens to be saying today. And so as we read it, uh, we sounds like we probably would disagree with how this person is interpreting those verses. Um, that being said, I think it's high time that the church can find a place for brothers and sisters who disagree on this and other topics like this to stop splitting churches and putting each other on heresy trial and uh, needlessly producing uh, division in the body of Christ before we sit down with each other and actually have conversations and dialogue on this, on this topic. That's the, the culture splits and divides on this and rips apart. The church of Jesus Christ should be the one place you see people with differences of opinion on interpretation and ethics coming together around the lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, I'm submitting all of my thoughts to Jesus and to dialogue with you as my brother and sister. Mm-hmm. I think that might be a place for us to, to start on this. That's good. Yeah, in some ways, I think that we're at a very interesting, exciting, and uh, for some people, I'm sure it's nerve-wracking uh, period where what's happening is, is you know, the, the, we've had a legacy of the Judeo-Christian culture here in America that is waning, but there's some good sides of that legacy, but there's also some very bad parts of that legacy. And one of the bad parts of that legacy was uh, a long tradition of scapegoating gay people. Uh, it's uh, the one sin that you could go after and everyone in the church could feel righteous about because the chances are you're not going to have a lot of folks in your congregation uh, who are struggling with that one, um, especially if you're going out of your way on a regular basis to scapegoat on it. So it's one of the things that the righteous people could come rally around and say, yeah, we may not be perfect, but at least we're not gay. Um, but see, what's happening is, is that stigma is going. The, 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 that judgment is, is losing its traction in the broader culture. And uh, I, I think what, what one of the things that's happening is that for the first time uh, on a, in a broad way, in a culture, uh, folks are, heterosexual folks are, and even many Christian folks are, finally seeing uh, gay folks as people instead of a category. And then you notice, gosh, you know, they're nice. Or, or men, that, that couple next door, their love makes our, 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 my marriage look, look, look ridiculous. And that poses some interesting questions. It, it, it's, it's easy to have a judgment that you never think about. You've got your three verses. You clobber people with it. But now we're, we're really having to struggle in an authentic way 
uh, with how to integrate uh, our, our reading with Scripture, with the reality uh, of where people are at. And um, uh, we've, we've got a, a, it took us a long time to get into the state we're in now. It's going to take us, it's going to take a lot of dialogue and a lot of love to see us through in the future. Um, but I think Paul is exactly right that the, the precondition for all of this is that we have a commitment uh, to, to, uh, to live in love and, and to uh, celebrate whoever comes alongside of us uh, following Jesus. And to have these kind of honest discussions, but having from the inside of the faith. This is why we have a GLBT support group here. And some folks would agree with our, our view of what the ideal of, of God's ideal for marriage is. Uh, some wouldn't. But see, we want to have that dialogue. Rather than making it, agreeing with us the precondition for being part of our family, we want to say, no, let's have this discussion from the inside of the faith. And why is it that we're, we're, we're okay with having a lot of disagreements on a lot of things um, and dialoguing about that? Um, and just trusting that as we dialogue about it, God will lead us in truth and will you know, we'll, we'll sharpen iron, sharpening iron, iron, and we'll grow from this. But when it comes to this particular issue, all bets are off. It's like there's no room for process and growth and dialogue. And, and, um, and so we want to be just saying, no, look, at, let's have this dialogue uh, from the inside of the faith, committing to not buy into the polarization of the culture. Right now, I bet as soon as that question was asked, uh, a certain percentage of people in the room got nervous. It'll be even more true tomorrow. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Because it, it, it's been so demonized. You know, the, the, the sides are polarized and there's so much venom about it and all of that. And we want to say in the kingdom, there's always a third way. And it's never about looking at the other person as an enemy. Never. And, uh, and we just commit to living in love and to having calm and rational uh, dialogues about that. And when we disagree, we disagree. Uh, but we keep moving forward in love. So, yes, you're welcome here. You're welcome. Yeah, welcome had, to come and talk. Final question. Was, yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm sorry you got booted. The left-handed fellowship <laughs> sometimes said. Okay. How do you know that God is real versus something created by people who are afraid of dying? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's not. It's funny how, how, how people go on this one. I mean, you know, atheists have often used the argument that God is sort of, the concept of God is sort of the psychological crutch. That sort of, you know, helps weak-minded people get through the day or maybe get through eternity with an idea that there's something, something more to come. You know, I don't know, but I went through, when I was a 18, 20, 21 years old, I went through a, a period of agnosticism on the question of God's existence for about six months. And my perspective at that point was, is I was hoping there wasn't a God because of eternity. Like, if there's no God, then you're just kind of done Right? And like, why would you worry about that any more than you'd worry about the fact you didn't exist before you were born? Like, I don't worry about that too much. And so for me, it was actually a, uh, where my life was at then, which was completely not with God. I was kind of hoping there wasn't a God as far as eternity was concerned. So I've never got that sort of, I hope there's a God for eternity sort of thing. But I suppose some people could sort of have that, that psychological need. But see, the, the question actually isn't, you know... Uh, which one is, is defining God's existence, the, the, the desire to have a God or not have a God in eternity? The question is, is there like reasons beyond human psychology for why there might or might not be a God? And uh, personally, the way I was, was sort of helped back after my agnosticism 
had a lot to do with uh, conversations that were going on in science and theology dialogue. Where I, for me, I, w- I was kind of a science guy growing up, and it seemed that in the circles I ran in, that you sort of had to kind of choose between God and science. But I finally found a group of Christians, really thinking Christians, who, could, who showed me that you could actually harmonize modern science and, and theology and, and belief in God. And for me, that was a huge breakthrough when I was in my 20s and uh, really helped me back to a belief in God. I know you kind of went through yeah, sure, something yeah, yeah. similar. Yeah, but you, you could almost turn that question on its head. Like Instead of saying, uh, how do you know that, that God is real instead of just a crutch because you're afraid of dying, you could say, well, how do you know that atheism is true instead of just uh, a crutch because you're afraid of facing a real God when you die? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it works both ways. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons you can give uh, for uh, belief in God. The one that, that uh, always has landed the most with me, as I, I went through that period of unbelief uh, when I, my faith got blown apart because I couldn't reconcile it with science and other things. But the thing that, that really got me reconsidering uh, belief in God and then a belief in Jesus and Christianity was about, it was about a year after I lost my faith. But as I was uh, trying to deal with the reality of living in this uh, an atheist world, and if, if atheism is true, that means that there's no overarching mind or rationality to things, and it means there's no overarching purpose to things, and it means there's no ultimate good or evil. A good or evil are going to be just personal or cultural categories, and any purpose you have is just going to be, it's going to end when you die. And if not when you die, then when your kids die or the kids' kids are finally when the earth gets sucked into the sun when it turns into a, a supernova and then eventually a black hole. And that's what's going to happen to all the suns. And so eventually we'll, the whole universe will die a heat death and come to a total state of equilibrium that's equivalent to nothingness. And that's the final hooray of everything. Well, that was painful. It's like, how, you know, it seems to me that what it is to be human is you long for an ultimate meaning part of it. You long for an ultimate meaning. And you long to make sense out of things. That's what I was trying to do, is I'm figuring things out. What, what, what view makes the most sense out of things? But why think there should be a sense to things if there's no overarching mind to stuff? And we want good to overcome evil. If you're at all healthy, you, you live so that you want to see good triumph over evil. But if atheism is true, then all of those longings are, they have no, no answer in the way things are. And then it struck me as utterly odd, even absurd, that nature would evolve by time and chance, would evolve a being like me who longs for things. It's a core who I am as a personal being. I long for things that nature itself doesn't supply. To the point where some people kill themselves because life is meaningless. So this isn't a trivial longing, this is a deep longing. And um, it seems to me that Either we personal beings, because we're rational, we're moral, and we're intentional, we have a purpose. Either we fit in this universe or we don't. And if we fit in this universe, what that means is that the ultimate reality is a a super instance of us. There's a mind and a a moral character and a volitional character, a purposing character, uh, that um, is the ultimate backdrop to everything. If that's true, then now I can understand why I am the way I am. But if that's not true, then I am, and you are, all personal beings, are, are freaks of nature. We're, we're like the, the Sahara Desert, uh, just evolving uh, some carp who exist in the middle of the desert, and they flop around in their miserable existence, longing for water, but there is no water there, and so they die a miserable, meaningless, pointless death. We are crop in the middle of the Sahara Desert, dying a meaningless death. Well, that doesn't explain anything, and plus it's very painful. And so I thought, i got to reconsider this. That's why I believe in God. I'm not afraid of death. It's just that I think it's true.
I don't want to be a carp. A who? Carp. Carp. Or crappie, whatever crappie. you say. Crappie. Flapping around the middle of the Sahara. It's miserable. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. If Jesus reveals an enemy-loving, nonviolent God, why does Jesus tell parables where God is violent, like the parable of the master of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Very good question. Um, Important question. You may have noticed that in some of the parables, uh, you've got, it seems like uh, uh, Jesus depicts God acting in violent terms. Um, The the illustration in Matthew 18, it's a parable of... Uh, this uh, it's, it's famous for because of the problem it poses. Uh, you've got this master who forgives his servant this incredible debt, 10,000 talents. Uh, it's like worth 164,000 years of labor in the ancient world. And then the servant goes around and doesn't return the same favor to a fellow servant. Well, then the master, he retracts the forgiveness of the debt, and now he throws them to the torturers. <laughs> he says, you'll be tortured until you pay back uh, the debt you owe me, as though being tortured could somehow pay back the debt. Um, and, and so if this is a model of God, well, then it's a God who uh, doesn't ever really forgive. Because the minute he gets ticked off, he revokes uh, the, the forgiveness and applies the debt. And it's a God, a God who acts violently. Here's the thing about parables. And this is really important. Because we're not a parabolic culture. So we, we, don't, we don't get... Um, we, have, we have trouble getting what's going on in a parable. It's like uh, if you were in a culture... Say uh, a thousand years from now, there's, Western culture has evolved in such a way where they no longer have political cartoons. Well, if you go back and study history and you read some of our political cartoons today... You're going to have a hard time knowing what's getting on, what's going on. I am part of this culture, and I still sometimes have trouble <laughs> knowing what's going on. I don't get it. I don't get it. But there's, there, you got to get kind of the, what's the nature of the joke. And parables are a lot like jokes in that way. They're, they're really culturally sensitive. So here's the thing. The word parabole means to throw down two things side by side. To throw down two things side by side. And what's being thrown down in a parable is... Um, is this, you have familiar elements that, are, that everyone's familiar with, okay? um, but right next to them are shockingly unfamiliar things. And what I would argue is happening, and there's a lot of scholars who, who uh, hold this view, though they debate the details of it for sure. But uh, Jesus is doing this in many of the parables. He's, he's uh, pointing out some kind of hideous, often he's pointing out a, a hideous... Uh, aspect of the culture, the injustice of the culture, uh, the tyranny of the culture, the oppressive nature of the culture. Uh, some, some scholars have even likened what Jesus is doing in a parable to a political joke. He's caricaturing something in the culture. Um, and then he, right alongside of it, throws out a kingdom principle. And so while he's jabbing at how, sort of, how the kingdom of God contrasts with the culture, using this barbaric stuff, he then wants to shock his audience by bringing out an important kingdom lesson out of this. Um, and so the point of parables is to shock the imagination, to help the coin fall in the slot. So a good example of this is that uh, parable in uh, Luke 16 of this uh, unjust steward or the unjust manager where he, he sees he's going to get fired. So then he goes to all of his clients and he cuts these deals. You know, he, he really screws over his boss because he makes these deals with all these folks so that once he gets fired, he's going to have some friends to go and sleep at their house uh, and, you know, whatever. So uh, Jesus says that this is what the kingdom of God's like. Well, 
Certainly, Jesus, Jesus isn't saying that we should go out and screw over our bosses by treating them unjustly. What he is saying is, he, he's using a common practice in the fallen world of his day, how people are you know, always, you know, cheating on one another, and he brings out this, this shocking uh, kingdom point. Uh, make friends ahead of time. Make friends with eternity ahead of time, he says. Uh, in other words, be thinking about the future and live for that future. So you've got to know what to take and what not to take. That's always important in parables. And so in this parable of uh, this, this king who forgives this debt and then the servant doesn't turn around and, and extend the same courtesy to his, his peer and then he gets thrown into uh, prison and the tortures. Jesus isn't saying that this is what God is or that this is how God's going to act. It'd be a terrible picture of God if, if that's what, what, what he's trying to, to do. Rather, this is a familiar thing that people are, are, are uh, aware of. The kings have the power to forgive like this, and then they have the power to revoke it in a second. The masters are always acting like that. That's not surprising to the audience. Uh, what's surprising is the point that Jesus brings out of it, and, and, the, and the, the points bring out of it is this. Given how much we have been forgiven by our Heavenly Father, it is a matter of urgency that we extend that forgiveness to others. And so it's not about what God, how God's going to behave. It is about the, the urgency of forgiveness in our life. And, um, and he's telling it in a shocking way. He, he tells that parable in response to Peter's question, how often should, you for, should we forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And then he tells this parable. So it's about the, the urgency and the need to forgive the way God forgives. But the debt that God's forgiven us is something we could never replicate towards others. Uh, it's another way of, of, of uh, saying Jesus' teaching when he says, if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. Uh, don't judge if you don't want to be judged. If you judge, well, then you're going to get judged. If you're not extending forgiveness, well, now you're in a different uh, retribution game. You're not playing the forgiveness game of the kingdom. Uh, if you want to play the forgiveness game of the kingdom, then you receive uh, forgiveness and you extend it to others. So it's all, it all depends on knowing what to get and what not to get in, in the parable. And I, I, I would just, I'll end with this, that... Uh, if ever you have a questionable picture of God in a parable, um, there I would encourage you to, instead of reinterpreting the teachings and the example of, that Jesus gives us about God, uh, instead of reinterpreting those teachings in the light of the parable, reinterpret the parable in the light of the teachings. When, when, when Jesus says that the Father loves like the sun shines and the rain falls, there's nothing ambiguous about that. And so lock that one in. And then when you have problematic pictures of God, reinterpret them in the light of uh, Jesus' teaching. And uh, knowing that'll be one way to guide you in terms of deciding what should you apply, what should you not apply uh, about parables. Very good. Um, I want to draw your awareness to time constraints. Very good answers. But I would like to be able to get in two more questions. If so we shut can. up, right? <laughs> so, because um, there's so many, they're Zip really, it. really good ones. So let's. Try oh, yeah, you know what? I, I want to give this advertising. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it'd be important, folks. For uh, we're going to include the questions uh, from all three services online, and so I really would encourage you to listen to the other uh, two services um, because there'll be questions there that you'll uh, want to uh, be tuned in on. So uh, you got a big smorgasbord this weekend. Yes. Okay. Your emphasis. I'm assuming this is towards Greg, but Paul could answer too if he wanted. Yeah, you can. <laughs> um, your emphasis on being willing to sacrifice to help others concerns me. Are there no circumstances where you'd be unwilling to risk dealing with someone who is unstable and dangerous? I struggle with my neighbor who is crabby and uses drugs, which complicates things. 
How can we confront people peacefully if they're not so peaceful? Mm. Boy, you had to read that one right after you say to keep it short. How do you keep that short? (laughs) Well, do your best. Love and use a lot of wisdom. Paul, would you like to add to that? Amen. You know, no, you you know what? There's a obviously. Look at the thing is here is that. However you act, you want to be acting in a way that ascribes unsurpassable worth to people. Okay, that's the bullseye. That's what God does to us, and that's what we're called to do to other people. And so never should we be detracting worth from them. That's what violence is. You're violating the worth of a person. That's violence. Violate. You're, you're, you're taking worth from them. But sometimes in order to ascribe worth to people, you've got to protect them from themselves. Sometimes in order to ascribe worth to, to, to people and to yourself, you've got to protect yourself. Sometimes even separate from people. Sometimes you've got to protect, intervene and protect some other folks from, from, from somebody. Uh, you do it in a way that ascribes worth to them, uh, but it doesn't mean that, that you don't do it. No, it means you, you intervene. Here's the difference, though, is that, if, see, if we're not living in love the way Christ loved us, then what we end up doing is we end up judging, uh, putting people into categories and, and contrasting ourselves with them so that uh, they're the enemy, and now we feel justified using whatever force is necessary to put a halt to whatever uh, negative behavior they're doing. If this person was my son, however, that would change the equation, wouldn't it? If it was your son, uh, you would now still need to intervene, but you'd do it with the awareness that you love this person as much as you love the person that you're trying to protect. And that changes the game considerably. Uh, we're to have that mindset to all people. You, you love them uh, because Jesus died for them. Uh, and that, 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 that alters the kind of wisdom that you have when you I- intervene in a situation to put a stop uh, to harmful behavior. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so important, I think. Jesus said, love your enemy. He never said, be an idiot. <laughs> and, and so how one that's loves true. one's enemy. You look at Jesus' life or look at Paul's life. There, there were times we have uh, recorded in, in, in the narratives of both their life histories where they were threatened by, by people. And, you know, Paul, for example, was, was uh, being sought to be killed in Antioch, and he just didn't go, whatever. Uh, he, he evaded them, and he actually, you know, got some people to let him down the wall to escape. I mean, Jesus was several times uh, throughout the Gospels, people trying to grab him and, and put him, either lock him up or, or kill him before his time, and he, he evaded that. He, he, he was wise about that. So, yeah, it's not a matter of of that love requires putting your brain in neutral. It's a question of, when it comes down to it, is self-preservation the highest good? Yes. And in America, I mean, maybe you can say the whole world, but particularly in America, uh, where we've sort of built our nation on the notion of personal freedom and personal rights and individual autonomy, it can quickly become the case that we start leveraging American values over kingdom values. Um, I was just watching a show recently, uh, and, and the, the, the question posed was, uh, I actually said it this way, if we follow our morals, we'll die. Are we going to do that, or are we going to survive the day? Uh, the question being, uh, if you actually do what you think is right, you might lose your life, but we can't do that. We just got to survive. Well, you know, news bulletin, we're all going to die someday. What's the point of being alive? Is the point of being alive to live one more day or is the point of being alive to have our character shaped into the image of Jesus Christ and be ready for the kingdom to come? And if that's the case, then there may be times that I'm called to lay my life down, not as an idiot, 
but as a way of extending love and, and uh, but always guided by God and wisdom and principles of the kingdom. But don't be pragmatics, utilitarian considerations, survival considerations should not be Lord of our life. Jesus is. And uh, we're called to be faithful, and uh, sometimes that means being impractical. Not being unnecessarily an idiot, but, um, you know, it didn't look very practical when Jesus got crucified. Uh, but it was a faithful thing to do, and in the long run, that's what's going to win the world, save the world. We know that we're not supposed to gossip and judge. However, sometimes we get sucked into it by our good friends. Could you please give examples of ideas of what to say to your friends to stop this behavior? Also, do you say the same thing to Christians and non-Christians? That's a good one. Well, they're all good ones, but this one's really important. Like commentary on your sermon. It, it was kind of a commentary. We've been uh, uh, the last four, five, six weeks. I don't know how long it's been. <laughs> but uh, been talking about uh, love uh, coming out of Colossians 3.14. And then the antithesis of love is the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is about judgment. And, you know, it says something that... Um, this is, unfortunately, a new concept for a lot of people. I mean, here at Wilbur Hills Church, we uh, dealt with this about eight, nine years ago as I was writing the book Repenting of Religion, which is all about this. And we did a six-month series on this. Uh, a lot of folks here at Wilbur Hills Church weren't here back then. But this is so foundational, and yet it's so rarely talked about. And I say all that to say this, that um, we're kind of pioneers on this, on learning how to collapse our, our judgments. And, and figuring out how it applies to different situations and circumstances. Uh, it's unfortunate, but true, that we're pioneers on this. Uh, so foundational, and yet uh, very few folks are aware of the, the nonstop gossiping, judging chatter that's in our brain. And every, every, every single one of those gossiping, judging thoughts blocks the flow of God's love into us and through us. And that is our main job as kingdom people. So to block that is to block the central thing. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad that we're at least uh, uh, figuring out how to apply this to our, our, our lives. Here's the thing. It does make, it, I think, a big difference whether you're talking about a uh, group of people that uh, you are in, in, in covenant with, that you're a kingdom community, and your, your self-understanding is that you're there to help one another grow in the kingdom and acquire Christ's maturity. And we all need those kind of contexts. And in that kind of context, it should be okay uh, to just... Say out loud, you guys, I think we're, we've crossed some kind of a line here. It feels like we're, we're not ascribing unsurpassable worth to this person or that person. Because that's what love is. It's about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. And when you're judging or gossiping, what that's about is, is that you have a group of people that are, are kind of fortressing or buttressing up their solidarity with one another by contrasting themselves with that person over there. We're not like that. Oh, we're not like that. And, and it makes you feel a little better about yourself. But kingdom communities uh, should never have that. We're not defined by an us versus them. We're defined completely by an us for him. So Christ is, is the center of our community. And, um, uh, and therefore, we don't need to, to contrast with others. Now, if you're not talking about a community of non-believers, well, that will very much kind of depend on your particular relationships with them. Um, on the one hand, uh, you know, the principle is that we, we don't go where we're not invited to go. Um, it, we, we, we're, it's not loving to just intrude your, yourself into a, a, a person's life. Um, and, and so there you just, I, I would just say you need, you need God's wisdom. Certainly, whatever the situation, don't participate in it. And simply by not participating in it, it we'll watch this sometime. Uh, gossip requires everyone to go along with it. 
And the minute someone opts out of it, it indicts everybody else. And you might find yourself being now the object of the gossip because uh, you're opting out of the system. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, just opt out of it. Don't participate in it. Maybe there'll be a loving way to ask a question about, you know, is that really so different than any of us? You know, but there you just need to seek God's wisdom. Yeah. The only thing I'd add is just, uh, I know when Greg took us through this for the first time eight, nine years ago, as he was working through this himself and, and, and the sermon series that the, produced the book, Repenting Religion, that was probably for me one of the most significant uh, spiritual growth moments, I think, in the last decade in terms of something that's impacted me long term. I had never, never uh, been aware of what was going on in my mind most of the day with regard to judgment. Uh, it's so natural. In fact, not only is it natural to human beings who are self-centered and, and as a sort of a self-centered like to, to find others who make us feel good about ourselves, right? This this judgment thing. But then our culture, particularly our culture here in America, feeds into that. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, every, every time you oh, walk man. through the, 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 the grocery line, there's just magazines judging people, right? Assess. It's even got to the point where I realized, I thought, well, if I'm not, if I'm not thinking something negative about something, about someone, that, that's the goal. But then I realized when I'm, when I'm actually making in my mind a positive assessment about somebody, I'm still assessing them. Because mm-hmm. if it's a positive assessment, well, apparently if they would have been different, it would have been a negative assessment. And so Greg challenged us about eight, nine years ago to, instead of being that, our, having that our autopilot, how about having blessing people our autopilot? And for, that's been something that's been so transformative for me, is trying to become an active blesser rather than a passive judger. Because left on autopilot, without thinking about your thoughts, it just seems we naturally go to that judging place. Whether it's good judgments or bad judgments, we're still in the driver's seat. We're still the judge. But when you're just blessing people, it's really hard to be judging them at the same time. Impossible. So it's, it's been a powerful thing for me. Mm-hmm. We're addicted to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's the original fall. And, uh, Jesus needs to set us free. Uh, the best way to do that is just to collapse the whole thing. And as Paul said, you just become a blessing machine. Every person, at all times, every situation, unconditionally, ascribe unsurpassable worth by blessing them. Amen. It sets you free. It's powerful. Okay, your next question. What is the condition of the dead in the intermediate state between death and resurrection? Are they conscious or asleep, and are they already separated into good and evil? They're decomposing. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) What's the state? (laughs) Very smelly. You know, for, for, for a long time through Christian history, for centuries... Just the, the assumption by, I think, everybody, as far as I was aware, for centuries, was that, well, when you die, um, your body is in the ground, and your spirit goes to the Lord, and you're conscious there. You know, if you're a Christian, you're conscious there. If you're not a Christian, you're probably conscious somewhere else, and it's not a very good place. Um, what's been interesting in the last, I don't know, a few decades, for sure, um, is modern science, and particularly brain studies, have uh, done a lot to show us the deep connections between uh, our brain states and our consciousness. There's been some Christians that have wondered, um, are we so tied to our bodies and our brains that when we die, we simply are gone and we await the resurrection to sort of come back into consciousness? And so there's, there's, there's among theologians uh, in the church today, some debate around what does happen. Um, I'm not even sure exactly what you think about that. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly, but um, 
Well, the you know, like, like most people, when I first became a Christian in 1974, I was given the, the view that immediately you die and either go to heaven or hell, and that's it. Um, and then as I studied and learned more uh, about the Bible and all of that, I uh, came to see that, that there's, um, um, it's not as clear-cut as all that. That's why you find that diversity of opinions. There are folks throughout church history who, who, who saw, who believe that the idea that uh, a disembodied soul immediately goes to heaven or hell right after death um, is, is not the... Um, if it's, even if it's allowed in the New Testament, it's not the central doctrine. The central teaching of the New Testament uh, and the central hope of the New Testament is the resurrection. Uh, first century Jews, when they thought about the afterlife, they didn't think about a disembodied soul. They, they, they envisioned the resurrection. Um, and so that's the emphasis. Whatever happens in between, that's the emphasis. Uh, there are a few verses in the New Testament that seem to me to indicate that there's some sort of consciousness after death. Uh, you've got Paul in Philippians 1 where he says, I don't know what's better to be with you or to go and be with the Lord. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about um, uh, it, it, when he dies, he'll be with the Lord, but in, in a naked state, a na- naked state, uh, longing to be clothed with his body. And so he seems to envision some sort of disembodied uh, uh, soul. So I'm inclined to think that. That there is, there's a consciousness that goes on. And in fact, there's some pretty compelling, convincing empirical evidence that there's consciousness uh, after death. I mean, these near-death experiences and things of that sort, uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I wouldn't base any doctrine on it, but, but it does kind of confirm that there's some kind of consciousness outside the body. So that's where I'm inclined to, 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 to believe. Um, but the emphasis, and this is the important thing, is that um, the, whole, the whole idea that our soul is sort of our spiritual part and our body is our non-spiritual part and you know, the body is sort of just a carcass that will get left behind and that heaven is this disembodied state that is that's very Platonic, going back to the philosophy of Plato in the 5th century BC, but it is not at all uh, Hebraic, it's not part of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, it's not part of the, the scriptural teaching. Uh, they always celebrated the physical world, our physical bodies and all of it. And God claims all of it as his own, and it's all spiritual, and he's going to restore all of it. So the hope is for the resurrection of the body and the restoration of all creation. Yeah, for anyone who is kind of interested in this topic, a book I think we both recommend is N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. It's a very good book. And uh, in there, he distinguishes between life after death and life after life after death. Uh, and why he says that's so important is because if all you think about is, well, we have life after death, you can sort of turn, turn the interim state in which our soul and body are separated into the eternal state. But he said that's not New Testament teaching. New Testament teaching is resurrection where body and spirit are united forever. And so a uh, really good book on, on this topic. All right. This is going to be an easy question. Oh, <laughs> finally. Now I'm worried. <laughs> Most evangelical churches in Minnesota seem to take a public stance against the legalization of same-sex marriage, but we didn't hear a word about it at Woodland Hills. Why is this, and what is Woodland's stance on this new law? Yeah, Greg, not one word. Because I'm scared. I don't want to offend people, don't you know? I'm so sensitive about that kind of thing. Well, you know, we, that's a very good question. Thanks for asking it. Um, the, the core thing is, we, we at Willing Hills Church have uh, passionately embraced the, the, the concept that we, our, our, our calling is to keep the kingdom holy. The word holy means separate, distinct, set apart. Uh, 
part of the reason why uh, we're passionate about that is not only that it's a central aspect of the teaching of the New Testament, but we are in a cultural context where, in our country, for centuries, right from the foundation of it, the, the, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God have been fused together. And uh, um, that has compromised uh, the, the quality of both, <laughs> uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Um, and it leads to all sorts of, of, of craziness. And so uh, one of the effects of that is that you have Christians who think it's their job. And the more conservative Christians tend to be more, the most passionate about this. It's their job to impose their ideas on the culture. Uh, because their ideas are the Christian ideas. Their ideas are the, the superior ones intellectually and the superior ones morally. And um, in fact, it goes back to the whole model of Christendom, the church militant and triumphant. As soon as Constantine gave the church all this power in the 4th and 5th century, the church began to say, hey, well, you know, we've, we've got the power of the sword to enforce the law. Uh, well, then I guess we're supposed to use it. And so instead of imitating Jesus, who always... Uh, took, kind, of, kind of came at people under them and had power under people to win their heart by serving them and loving them and sacrificing for them. Uh, rather than doing that, the church became this uh, institution that tried to conquer the world and grab hold of political power and enforce it on others. Because we are the righteous people. We're the moral policemen of the world. Uh, you know, we're, we're not the least of sinners uh, or the, the worst of sinners. We're the least of sinners. Uh, and therefore, we can judge others and impose our morality. And... Um, we just want to be uh, saying out loud that that is just a violation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is unlike any kingdom of this world. And our, our job as kingdom people is to rally around that kingdom, focused on that kingdom, uh, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and to model to the world this alternative kingdom by how we live, how we treat one another, how we treat our neighbor. Uh, that's our call. Our call is not to try to legislate the morality of the world. Uh, and if you look at church history, um, never once has that worked. Whenever the church has tried to legislate the morality of the world or impose their beliefs on others, uh, it not only did not look like Jesus, it looked very often like the Antichrist. Uh, and that's where you get the Inquisition and, and all the persecutions and things of that sort. And nothing has harmed the kingdom of God more than that. So here's the thing. You know, you can have a conviction as a kingdom of God person that God's ideal for marriage is a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Got that. But does that mean then that, that uh, it's, it's unambiguous that uh, we, you should try to outlaw any other kind of, of relationship or marriage in the culture? Um, do you want to try to legislate all sin? I, I doubt that because then we'd have to legislate our own sin and that would be inconvenient. We always like to legislate other people's <laughs> sins, uh, not ours. Um, there's a lot of things that I would be personally uh, opposed to, but... I might think is good for a democratic society. In fact, democracy works only if you are working for the maximal amount of freedom for all people in a pluralistic society. Maximum freedom, uh, so long as you're not stepping on the rights of others. Uh, in the kingdom, our goal is not about maximal freedom at all. It's about being surrendered to Jesus Christ. And, and so you, you could have shared convictions about what a kingdom of God person should do. It doesn't mean at all that, that, that you feel it's your job. If you think it's your job to vote at all, and, and deciding that it's not your job to do that is perfectly uh, legitimate. But if you do think you should express your opinion about it, uh, it, it doesn't translate unambiguously. You, you could uh, say, well, as a kingdom person, I'm opposed to it, but I think that it's good for democracy and good for society to have this as a freedom. So you don't outlaw that. And um, 
Uh, and so that's why, um, given our the center is to rally around the kingdom of God, uh, what the society does with the word marriage and a, a hundred other things, well, that's, that's that. That's that. We're not going to rally around our opinions about that. We probably disagree about that. Fine. Who cares? Matthew and Simon, uh, who followed Jesus, they had opposite opinions about the government of the world. One was a tax collector, which is ultra-conservative. The other one was a zealot. I was ultra-liberal. You never hear a word about it in the Gospels. And what does that tell you? It tells you that when you have Jesus in common, your political opinions, whether they're hyper-conservative or, or socialist, libertarian, communist, I don't care. Uh, whatever they are, it's insignificant. We rally around Jesus, leaving everything else to everything else. Amen. Parenting seems to constantly involve judging the good and bad in our kids. How do we do this in a loving way? What was the first the part of the question? Parenting seems to constantly involve oh, judging yeah. the good and evil in our kids. Ah. <laughs> given that we're, this is Father's Day, that's an appropriate question. Yes. And given that you're still in the, the, the season I of am. parenting, I think you should answer this. <laughs> my, my kids are all grown. It's too late for them. <laughs> You know, whenever um, Greg revisits the topic of judgment for us, um, a lot of questions come up because of sort of the semantics of this whole thing. How do we, how do we talk about this topic without finding even uh, contradictions in the Bible, right? I mean, sometimes the Bible says, Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Other times, you know, uh, Paul or Peter will come back and use that same word, uh, krino, in, in Greek, judgment, to say that we actually are called to, to, within the church, uh, in fact, it says judgment begins in the house of God, for example. Um, Paul says, what, what business do we have judging outsiders, but within the church? Right? So we've got to realize that, that there's different ways of using that term. When Greg uses it as a negative term, it's always about the idea that I, if I'm judging, I am getting life from others by putting myself in a superior position to them. That's the negative form of this term. And so I think Greg has helpfully said, let's, use, let's find another term. How about discernment? For the positive aspect, where you're not trying to suck life out of people by putting yourself in a superior way, but rather in relationship, you're simply speaking truth as you see it to another person in love for the purpose of growth and maturity. And so in that sense, love and discern, or judgment and discernment are two very different things. They can look similarly on the outside in the sense that you might be speaking to things that need to change in someone's life, but the heart motive is radically, radically different. One's for outside of relationship, really, because it's, it's, it's breaking relationship as you judge someone in a superior stance. The other's inside of relationship, out of a love of a self-sacrificial, other-oriented love for growth in that person. And so I think in parenting, you've got what the family is supposed to be is a little covenant community of believers who are all trying to grow together. And as a parent in love, not self-centered judgment, but in love, tries to guide and, and discern what is a healthy way for a child to grow up in the ways of God, right? But in that context, I would hope even the parent in that little covenant community of family is open to being challenged by both parents together, children to parents like... We are growing as brothers and sisters in that family into the image of God. And so I think whether that's um, a, a nuclear family of parents and kids or whether it's a church family of, of, a, of a house group, a covenant community, the same thing can happen where positive, loving discernment can happen instead of self-centered judgment. Okay. 
Uh, one way to think about it is, um, just to be clear on it, is uh, to distinguish between horizontal and vertical uh, judgment. Whereas a, a, a horizontal judgment, I think of it like this, where I'm distinguishing between things, helpful and unhelpful, uh, orthodox, heretic, uh, moral, immoral, things. Uh, whereas in a vertical judgment, it's like this. And now I am feeding off of another person. I'm judging the person. Um, and um, yeah, I'm ascribing worth to myself at their expense. The, the, the uh, horizontal judgment is perfectly compatible with and often even required by ascribing unsurpassable worth to somebody. Whereas the vertical judgment, by definition, is negating that. And therefore, it's negating our essential call as kingdom people to ascribe unsurpassable worth to all, uh, all people at all times. So if Paul and I are in covenant here, and we are, uh, if I say to him, I, there's something I'm discerning, I'm concerned. You know, are, are you spending enough time? How are things going at home? Are you spending enough time with Kelly or whatever? Uh, I'm doing that not to feed off of this. And because we're in covenant, Paul knows this. If a stranger came up to him and said, hey, I don't think you're a good, good husband. It's like, well, you don't know me. I haven't invited you in my life. You know, that feels like a judgment. But if I do it, uh, there, and there's an, a covenantal understanding here. Well, then it gets received as this and he'll take it seriously because he knows that I am enough on the inside of his life to have some discernment about this kind of thing. And in fact, what I'm doing is far from detracting with, from him. I'm really saying, uh, Paul, as a, a fellow kingdom person, you and I, are, are, we know our identity in Christ. And we know our call. And you're better than this. The real you, Paul, in Christ, is one who uh, doesn't just spend all your time uh, doing what you want to do, but carves out time for your spouse. And so I'm actually ascribing worth to him by calling out this discernment. And he knows that because we're in relationship. And we all need those kind of relationships. They almost don't exist at all in America. Uh, because we're, we're so into this... The idol of individualism and nobody gets to speak into my life and I do what I want, how I want, when I want, and blah, blah, blah. That even our closest friends, we don't give the permission to speak into our life. But as kingdom people, we've got to realize that we all have blind spots. And, uh, uh, and the kingdom was always meant to be a community kind of a thing. And so that's a loving thing to do, to discern like that, whether you're parenting or in a covenant relationship. Outside of those contexts, that's where Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the, the, the church? Or the judgment, discernment begins at the house of God. Uh, there again, to go back to the previous question, why aren't we going to be rallying around different opinions about what the world should do? The answer is, what business is, is it of ours to be judging them? No, discernment begins at the house of God. Let's, let's take care of our own issues, all right? And, and uh, become the bride that we're supposed to be. And then maybe God will use us to impact the culture. But until that happens, well, just, we're just joining the fray of competing opinions. This last point, I think, Greg made is so important because I've even I've heard uh, folks here at Woodland who've taken the message of of anti-judgment and they've used it to sort of maintain this radical individualism, where anyone who's on the inside of their life, like people that do know them and do love them, when they speak about something they see in their life that's not healthy, uh, instead of a humble receiving that, a teachable spirit, it's like, hey, don't judge me. And all of a sudden, if you use that in that sort of dangerous way, you can isolate yourself from anyone speaking truth into your life. And that, that's really a, a spiritually unhealthy place to be. Absolutely. So we've got to be very careful how we, how we apply this teaching. Excellent. Okay, your next question is, I am in my mid-30s, and I don't know if I'll ever get married. And while I'm grateful for the self-control I've developed, 
I sometimes cry when I think about the possibility of never having sex. Why is this so hard? I know that we all have a cross to bear, and I just have to take it one day at a time, but it's never easy. Hmm. Yeah. Greg's thought a lot about this. <laughs> so. Really? <laughs> uh, you know, I, part of me just want to say, you know, just want to say, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> you deal with it. Uh, you know, um, here's, a, here's a different way of coming in. Oh, uh, yeah, good. <laughs> Thank so that, you, that, that was my final word. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> Empathy. I, okay. yeah. um, you know, it's funny. I, I've been doing a lot of reading in the last few years on sexuality, hopefully a book that will be coming out someday. Um, and what I've fallen into more recently is a lot of uh, historical and sociological studies that have been done showing that sometime in the 19th century, when the Romantic movement uh, really hit Europe, and then preceding or following that, um, the, the influence of that into the early 20th century when, when uh, biologically-based uh, sex studies really began to, to hit uh, uh, both Europe and America, um, and Freud's uh, psychological theories, of course, in the early 20th century. And check it down, check it down. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> this is what happens when you read so much. Like, Please let me share. Someone press the button. Um, <laughs> point is, something unique happened in human history in the last hundred years. And that is that, I mean, humans have always been sexual, obviously. Uh, that's always been a category, that, and there's been importance to that. But something's happened in our culture in the last hundred years that has hypersexualized our mindsets. It's, it's created a cultural constructed category that basically now says to us that if you're not sexual and if you're not living that sort of out in some way, there's something unhealthy about that, there's something repressed about that, there's something that even on a biological basis you could explode if something doesn't happen here, right? And, What's interesting is no culture in human history, up until Euro-American culture in the last hundred years, ever thought that. In fact, what's interesting is many cultures across human history, prior to our culture in this last century, had the opposite perspective. That, in fact, it's people with, with sexual self-control and restraint who are actually living the highest uh, level of life. That, that, that mere sort of sexual need at, at that is, is almost like a, a base animal instinct, but that we're human beings who, while we can participate in that when it's appropriate, we don't have to. We're free of having to simply follow our animal instincts. So it's interesting how something has flipped in our culture. And I think we just need to be aware that, that we've been socialized into a way of thinking about sex that's not how most humans have ever thought about it. And as kingdom people, we have to ask, what is the kingdom perspective on sexuality? And not simply let our last hundred years in America define for us what's true about, about our sexuality. That's just, I think, part of the context in which we have to ask this question. And part of that whole movement that Paul's talking about uh, resulted also in, in um, this, this uh, new concept of marriage where, where uh, uh, all intimacy and deep relationship needs were supposed to be met in marriage. Um, and it, we, we developed this idealized view of marriage where, um, yeah, it, it was supposed to meet all, all your, your, your intimate needs. And um, no one's ever thought that throughout history. It's a new concept. And part of the reason, in this one book, uh, who was the author of that book uh, that we... William Faderman. Well, I, Lillian Faderman. Lillian Faderman. 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 
Yeah, it's really good. It's, it's an <laughs> academic book. I can never remember names. Lily, really, 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 whatever. But uh, really showing how uh, it, it has... It's one of the reasons why marriage is sort of in a crisis state in our cultures because it carries too much weight. Because no marriage can meet all your needs. Um, and uh, this person was saying how they're, they're, previous to that, you find um, relationships between people, uh, same gender relationships that were deeply loving, like Jonathan and David in the Bible, for example. And even to our, in our grid, looks kind of romantic. Uh, but um, in fact, it was not sexual. It was just it had this profound in, in, intimacy. Now, the result of all that is that now, and the church is, is, has failed so bad at this, and we need to, to really ask what we can do about this, but we have this idea of either you're married or you're single, and even the word single, it, 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 it's kind of defined as there's, you're incomplete, you're not yet joined with another. Uh, whereas in the past, especially in the kingdom culture, that was seen as a, as a high ideal, to be only married to Jesus, now it becomes sort of your, your in a holding pattern. You're, something's defective. You're, you're not married yet. And, and until you get married, you won't be complete in all of that. Um, all that is to say this, that it doesn't answer the question about how to wrestle with sexuality, but part of the dimension of this is that people who aren't married, for whatever reasons, just haven't found the right person yet, uh, or you're, you're gay, or uh, there's some other factor that, that has contributed to this, whatever the reason is, uh, it feels like you're condemned to a life of unfulfillment, and that should not be the case. Um, uh, in the kingdom, we have to have, be allowed to have relationships that are profound and loving yes. and embracing um, that, that are not erotic, but they're, they're, just, they're just fulfilling. The, the only other thing I'll say on this is that uh, it also is the case that we ought to be able, as, as kingdom people, in appropriate contexts, to talk honestly and, and, and frankly about how to wrestle with uh, sexual frustration if um, you're uh, not a person who is, is uh, naturally inclined towards celibacy, you're, 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 you know, you got the hormones going off and you're 25 years old and healthy and, well, how do you deal with that? And we're in a culture where marriage gets postponed much longer than it has in any other culture. I mean... I almost envy first century Jewish culture where the minute your sexuality kicks in around 12 or 13, boom, you got married. So you don't have this long period of, of frustration. Well, we have, you know, the average age now I think is like 26 or 27. So you got a lot of years of frustration. We ought to be able to talk honestly and openly about that uh, in appropriate context. This isn't the, the venue right now, but uh, some years ago I did a, a sermon. Uh, it was all on masturbation. And I'll give an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, you know, be able to talk about this and uh, how, how does that work and blah, 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 blah. But anyways, um, be, be honest about how to deal with that. It's tough. And the final word is, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to try to get to one or maybe two more questions, depending upon how long-winded Paul and Greg decide to be. <laughs> but before we do that, I just wanted to say thank you so much, because there have been so many great questions. And so I just really thank all of you for your participation. And we also, before I forget, I want to encourage you um, later in the week to download the other sermons, because we're asking completely different questions at every single service. So you'll definitely want to check those out. Yeah, some of the ones last night you, you don't want to miss. I mean, they're all going to be real, really good. So check it out. Mm-hmm. So, our next question is, in light of the Kindred Sermon Series this spring, are we saying that Woodland Hills really is an Anabaptist church? And if so, are we looking to make an official connection with an Anabaptist denomination? Good question. 
Yeah. You know, it, it's, um, I think it's important to distinguish um, how we're, at Woodland Hills, how we're using the word Anabaptist. Uh, and that is, when we say Anabaptist here at Woodland Hills, what we're really saying is a particular way of, uh, uh, it's a theological term, meaning a way of seeing uh, things theologically. It's not saying a particular denomination, right? So when we say, when Greg preached the Kindred series, it goes, hey, you know, we, we kind of woke up and realized, my goodness, we, we have a tradition. It's called Anabaptism. Um, that didn't mean that that locates us in a particular denomination. Rather, it means that we, we see things similarly to, to the way this theological tradition has seen uh, peace issues and the importance of Jesus at the center and God as, as love and the implications of that. But once we've realized that, wow, you know, th- this is just who we are, it does raise the question of, so what might that mean for an official connection to a, a body of, of like-minded believers? And so we've been really wrestling with that question. Um, we've, uh, we've really sensed that God's been saying to us in the last couple of years that what we're called to do as a church can't be done alone. And what we don't want to pattern in this church is sort of a, a, a community version of the rugged individualism that so many of us live on an individual life. We, we call uh, each other here to community at Woodland Hills. We also want to think about the question, might we as Woodland Hills be called to be part of a larger community, to be building the body with others rather than simply a, an isolated church? And we do, we do have a, a relationship right now with um, Converge Worldwide, uh, formerly known as um, Baptist General Conference. Um, the question is, or that we're exploring, is might there be a... a, a an appropriateness to uh, aligning with a denomination that actually is Anabaptist in its, its way of seeing the world. And we're, we're just exploring that question, really, at this stage. We've, we've been in conversations with uh, the Mennonite uh, Church USA. Um, we've been in, or going to start having conversations with the Brethren in Christ, which is the group that uh, the Meeting House, our friends up in Toronto, are a part of. Uh, but really, right now, just in a seeking place with that. And we actually really would, would appreciate your prayers uh, and and uh, as we as, as leaders just discern that question, what is God leading us to in this regard? And the, the criteria that we're looking at is uh, uh, what, what affiliation would um, best serve us to do, carry out the mission that we're called to carry out? Uh, and uh, what affiliation would, could God use us to serve them? Because one of the things that's happening in this world, as I've, I've shared a number of times over the last several months, is... Uh, all around the world, there are folks, as, as the, the triumphalistic Christendom model, the kind of control society model, is dying, and it is dying, uh, out of the rubble of that arising all sorts of kingdom revolutionaries who get that Jesus completely reveals who God is and that our call is to live like Jesus and to be a community of people who look like Jesus and serve like Jesus and all of that. It's an Anabaptist vision. And many of them are looking, most of them are looking for a tribe and a tradition to plug into. Now, the thing is that the, 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 the traditional Anabaptist fellowships, because they were persecuted early on in their history, uh, they, they kind of developed a, a non-evangelistic, almost retreatist mindset, where they live on these isolated communities, and they haven't been very evangelistic. And so they don't know how to welcome in this rising revolution. Um, and, and they're kind of locked into their own culture. One of the things that Woodland Hills already is uh, how we're being used to help these other uh, denominations is by modeling what it looks like to have an Anabaptist theology, but not at all an Anabaptist culture. Uh, we, we don't, we don't uh, uh, 
look at all, like, like the, the, the classic Mennonites, uh, the brother in Christ, um, just our diversity and, and, and uh, our, our, our mannerisms and everything. But that's what they need to see illustrated, uh, how to be evangelistic and yet hold an Anabaptist theology. So all this is stuff we're, we're discerning. It really is exciting, though. The opportunity, the, the possibilities at this moment in history are huge and exciting. Uh, but therefore, we need to really be intentional on, on praying about uh, uh, how God would lead us. Great. We actually have time for one more. Yep. What is the biblical stance regarding mind-altering drugs? How does this apply to the use of drugs that are legal prescriptions as opposed to illegal drugs? Well, <laughs> I think you have some experience in this area, don't you, Greg, from your past? <laughs> yeah. God did work through a, a, a don't, totally don't hyped up mescaline there. experience I had to, where I thought I was a Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> But he used it to, to free me from it, so God can work through drugs, <laughs> which is not to say you ought to go out trying them uh, in order to see how God could use them. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I, the first thing I'd say is that there, there's a world difference between legal drugs and illegal drugs. Um, the Bible says, at the very least, obey the laws of the land. And um, as kingdom people, uh, we're supposed to do that, except when... Uh, a law of the land requires us to compromise a kingdom call. Um, unless that's the case, we're to obey the laws of the land. Uh, even, Paul says, in paying taxes. Uh, their government used taxes for barbaric, stupid, violent, killing reasons. But Paul says, pay the taxes. Don't let that get in the way of your kingdom work. Uh, so also, we're, we're, we're to obey the laws of the land. And so, for another reason, then we, we should do that. Um, the, the other thing I'd say is this, that um, there's a world of difference between somebody t- taking a, uh, a medication because they need it. Um, you know, the, the mind is an incredibly, incredibly sensitive electrochemical organism. Operates by neurons firing on one another in very precise ways that require a very particular balance. If you're off on any of those, it makes it very hard. I mean, it, 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 the hardwiring of your organic computer is screwed up. And... The right medication can help balance that, and there is no shame in taking medications to do that. That's no different than taking Pepto-Bismol because you have, you have an upset stomach. It's just that your brain's a little more complicated than your stomach. I just spoke, spoke last week to a person who uh, needs, it seems to me, this kind of medication, and yet uh, thought that, that it was contrary to the call of the kingdom to, to be taking them. But when he doesn't take them, it messes up his life. So take those. That's very different than taking drugs recreationally. Uh, Taking mood-altering or uh, mind-altering stuff is illegal, and doing it for recreational purposes is uh, is dangerous. In fact, there's a spiritual component. We talk about that in God at War. Why don't you share and by sharing that? Yeah, it's important to remember that, you know, um, what we call mind-altering chemicals, uh, for most of human history across the board culturally, um, indigenous cultures always knew that when you take uh, things that, that begin to alter your mental state, you're quite likely opening spiritual doors uh, into things. I mean, frequently people would take um, these things in various cultures to actually be inhabited by spirit beings. It was part of the way in which you communicate with the spirit realm. And of course, in our culture, which is sort of secularized, we just lop that off and, and sort of forget about that. But, you know, as Greg has written, and as we teach at Woodland Hills, spiritual warfare is a real thing, and the spiritual dimension is, is real stuff. 
And to, to, when, when you ask questions like this on a very practical level, to weave that into your theology is important. What does it imply that most cultures thought that these kind of chemicals actually are doorways to the spirit realm? And uh, not always good spirits. So there's a dimension there. But uh, another thing would be, I think, a principle of freedom. And uh, mm. Apostle Paul hits this really hard. That uh, we are to be uh, bound to nothing uh, but Jesus Christ. And so it's one thing to talk about illegal drugs, but then you, Christians have to ask the question, what might there be that's not illegal? And in fact, maybe that's very culturally acceptable, but is still leading us into patterns of bondage in this area. And you've got to ask the question, how many you know, folks are in bondage to the legal drug of caffeine uh, that are not living Watch in freedom? I, I know where I'm going. I know, I know. <laughs> I just had some this morning, so I've got to repent with you. But it's a question we should ask, right? <laughs> not for right. very long. But, but. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Be free. Uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, Paul says, in that freedom. Galatians 5.1. Excellent, excellent. So why is the word tithing so taboo at Woodland Hills Church? <laughs> Don't say the word! <laughs> not. Ah, power of Christ compels you. <laughs> you want to take it or should I take it? Tithing, yeah. First of all, what does it mean? What does it mean? So, for, for a lot of churches, um, for a long time, sort of the, the, the main impetus for giving has been looking back to Scripture and this concept of tithing, which refers to giving 10% of, of one's income. And it's a, it's a very important teaching in the Old Testament. Why it hasn't figured into a big part of our theology of giving here at Woodland Hills is because... Zero part, actually. Pretty much, is when you turn to the New Testament, it's just not given as a guide for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I think, you know, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, for example, there's sort of our theology of giving. Paul talks about giving there very clearly, and he doesn't bring a tithing rule with sort of like, okay, go for this law of 10%. What he talks about is things like, like giving cheerfully, giving um, uh, out of a heart of, of willingness uh, giving generously. So it's more a sense of attitude and principle rather than sort of legalistic percentage. Uh, we just don't see it as, as the, the, the way in which Christians should think about giving. Um, and so at Woodland Hills, we encourage people to, to ask God what, what is God calling each of us to give. And it might be 10% for some people. It might be less if you're unable to put food on your table this month. And it might be a lot more if God's given you uh, the kind of income that could really be blessing things above uh, with your abundance. So, um, yeah, it's more of a, a thing of, of seeking God, seeking uh, a word from him, a sense of, of leading, rather than simply going back to an Old Testament law. That's good. Yeah, actually, in the Old Testament, it was part of the uh, Jewish tax system. Uh, they actually gave 30% of their income. Uh, to uh, kind of help the government run things. And 10% of that went to support the Levites who were in charge of running the temple, and that was the tithe. And so Malachi, you know, the Lord says, uh, you know, well, you're robbing from me if you don't give the tithe. Uh, now it's just interesting to me that, that um, uh, on, on this topic, and sometimes whenever it's convenient, um, pastors and others just sort of jump over Jesus and if you can't find something in Jesus' teaching that you like, you just jump over him and go back to the Old Testament and pull something out of the Old Testament. Oh, here's tithing and then, so you're robbing God if you're not, if you're not tithing. But they don't do that with, uh, you know, the other 612 laws of the Old Testament. Uh, I don't see anyone going back there and saying, 
you shouldn't be wearing wool and cotton together because Leviticus uh, says that that's an abomination to the Lord or uh, any of the other kind of particular rules there. Uh, Because we are so emphatic on the need to base all of our marching orders on Jesus and to interpret everything in the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. Uh, and not to at all mix up uh, stuff that was in the Old Testament with what's in the New Testament, unless it's repeated in the New Testament. And it's because we're so emphatic on that that we, we go out of our way to say this is not some kind of a law, an external law uh, that, it, that applies to us. Um, as Paul said, in, in the New Testament, and this is what you'd expect given the whole tenor of the New Testament, it's out of a, a, a gracious heart, the abundance of your heart, according to his God has blessed you as you're able, and things of that sort. Not just sort of percentage point. Now, the, the only other thing I'd say is this. You do have, uh, in, in the, even before the nation of Israel came into being, uh, Abraham giving a, a tithe to Melchizedek uh, in Genesis 14. Um, and, and so it seems, it, well, you could argue that, and I, I, I actually think this, that the 10% thing, while it's not a law, it is kind of a benchmark. Because it even predates Israel. And, and, uh, and so I, I would say, unless you're in exceptional circumstances where you're having trouble putting food on the table, um, that if, if I can't give a tenth of all I have to support the ministry and to uh, manifest the kingdom or whatever, that may indicate, in my case, I'm sure it does indicate, that there's something wrong with my priority system. And for some of us, it might be 20% or 30%. Given how far above the global average our lifestyles are, if I can't manage to simplify my life to the point where I have 20 or 30% or however the Lord leads you uh, to give away, then that may indicate that I'm too bought into this culture of consumerism and individualism and greed. Yeah. But it's not a law, it's a principle. Okay, your next question is, please talk about the dangers of watching TV shows about mediums and psychics, such as the TV show Long Island Medium. I have to channel an answer here. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I don't know about that show. I've never heard of it before. But, um, uh, and so I can't really speak to, to that. I would say that uh, rather than uh, talk about the particulars of, of uh, a television show um, or whatever, uh, what's most important is that we internalize a principle or a teaching that can give us wisdom on how to uh, make decisions about these kind of things. Rather than having a rule about what shows you can and cannot wa- watch that goes into legalism, we have to understand that um, uh, you know, there can be some differences on this. Um, what, what is allowed for one person may not be allowed for another. We have to follow the Spirit's leading on the particulars. But the principle is this, that um, we are given in Scripture uh, real clear guidelines about uh, how we're to uh, relate to God and how we're not to relate to God. And the motif that runs throughout the scripture is that uh, we're to talk directly to God and, um, and follow God's leading. And any other kind of communication in the spiritual realm is dangerous. It's called divination or mediumship or you know, there's other words. But uh, we have to understand that we live in a world that is populated in an invisible, with an invisible society of beings, some of whom are good and some of whom are evil. And when we step outside of the guidelines of, that God gives us and we dial up something in the spiritual realm, it's like making a random phone call, you don't know what you're going to get on the other line. Uh, and it's dangerous. 
And remember that, that Satan can appear as an angel of light, Paul says in Galatians 1. And that realm is a realm of deception. Uh, I know personally of one person who uh, got involved in some of this, tarot card reading and psychics, whatever. And initially it looked like it was going wonderful because by means of the psychic following this boyfriend that looked like it was going to be so promising, whatever. She almost lost her life over this thing because this guy turned out to be a complete uh, sicko. And, and whether that was directly related to the psychic or not, I don't know. But it, it, w- it would follow the pattern that uh, it's just like the enemy to lure you with something that looks so promising in order to bring destruction into your life. So you've got to be very careful about that. And then we have to be careful about what we watch and, and what we're influenced by and, and, and all of that. Um, and that's where it will look a little different for every person because we're all individual. We've got to follow the Lord's own leading on that. But we all have to pay close attention to God's guidelines, which are there for our benefit um, and to help us uh, carry out the kingdom. Amen. Anything? I'll just affirm that. And, I mean, when you look at sort of what's happened to us culturally, uh, you know, we went into the, the modern scientific revolution in this culture, and for the last several hundred years, there's been this progressive sort of scientific mindset, secularization that's kind of, for a lot of people, wiped clear this idea of a spiritual realm. And then beginning, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, 1960s and such, this sort of hunger reemerged for spirituality. And uh, I think we're still in that mode, but be, because sort of everything was, was wiped clean for a lot of people, and then now there's sort of, I just need something spiritual, there's a real lack of discernment, uh, mm-hmm. I think, for so many yeah. people about what is in that spiritual world. And unless it's sort of like this overt evil, people sort of assume that what's coming through must be good. Mm-hmm. And that whole principle of this, that Satan's most deceptive stuff isn't when he's looking evil, it's when he's looking really good. And just getting you to begin to trust other things than Jesus Christ, right? That's, I think, what we've got to be careful of. Amen. Cheers. To you, bro. <laughs> All right. Your next question is, if the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, including pastors, so even you guys, Whoa. then how is it that you can put 10 pastors in a room and ask a question and get different answers? I would think that the Holy Spirit would reveal the answer to all of them. When Wood on the Hills pastors get in the room, we all hear the same thing all the time. <laughs> Sometimes you get 10 in the room and you get 12 different things. (laughs) Yeah, Greg, why is your church pastor's team so messed up that that way? Watch it, you're part of it. Well, you know, here's the thing is that that, um, uh, it's not as simple as simply uh, following uh, the the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Um, It could be the case that if we were all perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit, we would all get the same answer. On the other hand... um, you know, the, the, the way we relate to the Holy Spirit and, and uh, the, hear the Holy Spirit and things like that, it's always mediated through our own mind and our own personalities and our own experiences. All that comes to play in this. And, um, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's to a certain amount of this is understandable that, that we're going to hear the Holy Spirit through the grid of our experience and our thinking and our philosophies and all of that sort of, uh, sort of thing. Um, and it could be that, that to some degree, the difference is a matter of uh, hardness of heart or we're just not paying close enough attention. But sometimes I, I think some of the ambiguity is intentional on God's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't necessarily want to make everything absolutely clear. In part, one of the reasons is because 
Um, he wants a community of people who have a love for one another that's stronger than their differences. And so, to some degree, our individual perspectives on things, uh, the way we interpret things differently and understand things differently, um, it's not all bad. Some of that is good. It's part of what makes the body of Christ beautiful and, and all of its diversity. If we can have a love that transcends our differences. The problem results happens when people start to get life from their opinions and the rightness of their opinions. And begin to identify their own thoughts with God's thoughts so that if you disagree with them, you disagree with God. And now, you can, the only thing that can happen is either you agree with the person or you have a split. Um, and uh, that, that does not glorify God. It's got to be the case that if we're going to model the love of the triune God as Jesus prayed in John 17, that, that we ha- our love for one another has got to be uh, much greater than our differences of opinion. That I'm going to, we agree to ascribe unsurpassable worth to one another and to sacrifice for one another, even if you fundamentally disagree with something that's important to me. Even if, maybe I can't even understand how you could possibly come to that conclusion. Still, I have to just trust that you're seeking God as best you can and listening to God as best you can. And I have to trust that I'm doing the same. And so we just go on loving. And, um, and that glorifies God. Yeah, I think there's, you know, Greg gave one reason why perhaps God might actually allow uh, and, and why, how there could be benefit of difference uh, of sensing of his will or such in particular. And here's another one. Paul's pretty clear about this in, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the fact that two believers could ask God about the same issue. Uh, he uses the example of eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols, which was a major debate in the early church. Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed in pagan temples? And Paul said, for some people, they're going to sense from God, yes. Others are going to sense, no. And both of them are right in the sense that they're both called to follow their own conscience, which God is working with. Because different people have different things that could draw them away from God. Others, for that, for that person, that wouldn't be a thing that would ever draw them away from God. So there can be different um, senses of conscience that we have. And we have to honor uh, each other in, in the different senses of that. And so there's a number of reasons why, beyond simply mishearing God, that we can account for these sorts of things. The only thing I, I would like to add to that is that while some of the diversity, maybe a lot of the diversity, is natural and understandable and even willed by God, uh, it's also the case that um, I, I, I at least have been amazed at what can happen sometimes when you get mm-hmm. 10 people who are able to genuinely put their opinions aside and not get life from their opinions um, and set aside their own agendas and just seek God's will. That If you've got 10 people who are genuinely doing that, I've been sometimes really impressed by how the Holy Spirit does build consensus. Yeah, and man, there's kind of an agreement. And often, what ends up being, the consensus ends up being something that no one in the room was entertaining. It's something that kind of surprises us. So even while we have to love amidst our differences and, and, and uh, be open to that and okay with that, uh, it's still very important that, on, especially on essential matters, that we're seeking God's will together and as much as possible dying to ourselves and dying to getting life from our own opinions. Amen. Is it wrong to listen to music such as rock and roll music, which seems to have great beats and guitar runs, but at the same time can sometimes glorify womanizing drugs and alcohol? You're a rock musician, Greg. I think you should handle this question. Of course it's all right. Go ahead. Yeah. It depends on, on how godly the people are who are playing it. 
I don't know. Uh, Here again, my first response would be to go to a Romans 14 thing that Paul just mentioned. Um, You know, the first first church I was saved in, um, they they had this, they had a billion rules, but one of them had to do with, uh, you can't ever listen to secular music, uh, any, any kind of rock music, and so... Uh, when I gave my heart to Christ, I got rid of all my Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and oh man, I, it's, it's such good stuff. Uh, but you know, and, and, and now my, my, my view is that that here's the kind of thing where we, we have to seek God individually. Uh, what I mean, there are people I know who their association with Led Zeppelin or Grand Funk Railroad or whatever it, it just does not help them um, to be entertained by that. They are associated with all sorts of stuff and it pulls them in that direction. And so they have to just abstain from that. There's others who um, it doesn't seem to have any influence. They they hear the music, uh, the lyrics don't even phase them. Um, And and, and, and so you you have to honor those those differences of opinion. I find that, I mean, I've been in this second group for a while, kind of in a reaction to this legalism that I was first given, um, you know, that I enjoy rock music and, and uh, all kinds of music, actually. But I am finding the last several years, especially, that uh, an increasing number of songs I just got to turn off. Uh, even though I might like the tune, the lyrics just so bug me that I uh, have got to get rid of it. Or sometimes what I'll do is I'll just superimpose my own lyrics on it and I'll sing my own God-glorifying lyrics, you know, so... <laughs> Instead of a honky-tonk woman, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, a lady in need of Christ. And I met her, and, and we had a conversation about Jesus, and <laughs> took her upstairs to witness to her. <laughs> and then she blew my mind, you know, she to Christ. The conversion experience. She's a converted yeah. honky-tonk woman, that's right. <laughs> but you're a Led Zeppelin fan, what do you think about this? I've repented of that. Uh, you have not. I just rode the other day in the car. He's like... <laughs> I'm still working working through that. And by the way, Grand Funk Railroad was a 1960s rock group. All right. 1970s, actually. Whatever. American band. Make it relevant to our, our, right. our younger audience. Yes. Jimmy Eat it World. World. Jimmy Eat World. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's... I, I had the same experience when I, when I, you know, really came to the Lord in a serious way. Um, the, the rock and roll thing to me represented, I think, part of my rebellion against God. And I had to step back from that for a number of years. I got rid of a lot of good Pink Floyd, too. And, um, and then, you know, actually, I, I found a whole world of Christian rock. You know, that, that was Go Larry Norman. Right? Come on. All right. Life um, was full of guns and war, and everyone yeah, got trampled okay. on the floor. There we go. Ah! Talk about violence. <laughs> good night. But uh, again, a matter of conscience, what is God saying to you? Not judging each other on that, because I know so many Christians got into that game of uh, those judging those who listened to rock, those who listened to rock judging those who didn't because they were you know, repressed or whatever. And uh, the principle of love right, is, is what can guide, I think, the church on these questions. It's always just really good that you're asking the question. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's in some ways the most important thing. That as kingdom people, our default should not be the culture. We should always be asking the question, is this helping me in the kingdom or is this harming me in the kingdom? And there's sometimes where things that you thought were totally innocuous, innocent, uh, maybe even helpful, if you ask God about it, he'll reveal to you that that's actually hindering 
you in ways that you didn't realize. And so it's always important to subject everything. What we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, what we drink, who we hang around with, all of that, submit it to the Lord um, and, and seek his will. And then when you get it, don't just impose it on other people. That's, that's for you. Uh, and um, yeah, and so don't make a law out of it. Yeah. Thank you. Rob Bell has recently stated in public that he now believes that homosexuality is a viable lifestyle for Christians. What is Woodland Hills' perspective on this? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> See, it says something, doesn't it, that, uh, and this is true of the previous two services. In fact, I want to tell you that, that every service is different because the questions are different. And so we're going to put up all three services this week on our podcast and I encourage you to, to listen to the other services because there's good questions in each of these services. Um, and he, he, every, in every service, there's been a question about either gay marriage or something around homosexuality because that's a pretty hot topic these days. And it says something that as soon as it's asked, there's a, like, a sense of seriousness that comes on the room. And I bet a certain percentage of people right now are nervous. And Including see, you? Not me. I, 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 I'm totally cool. I, I'm smooth. But see, here's, here, here's in some ways, I think, what's the most important thing to say about this. Is that um, as kingdom people who are called to represent a distinct kingdom, we have to really seriously take care that we don't buy into the categories, the either-ors of the culture. Um, in the culture, you, 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 you've, this thing is now polarizing. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a political issue. Uh, sides, people on both sides are demonizing one another. And as kingdom people, as we approach hot topics like this one, it's so important that we say our call is first and foremost to love and to be humble uh, and to uh, realize that we're just human beings. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, to have a, have a love for one another that transcends our differences because there are going to be differences of opinion on this. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Rob is a friend of mine. Um, I, I think he's, he's the, a dear brother. Um, and I understand where he's coming from. He's now out in Hollywood. Uh, he's working in the movie industry and whatever. And he's come to uh, just get to know some, some wonderful uh, gay couples. Um, and uh, for some of them, their, the love and devotion and concern for one another uh, puts to shame maybe the majority of, of, of uh, heterosexual marriages. Um, and in light of that, I mean, he, he just notices that it, it's having an impact on him. And, and so he and many other people are, are asking, uh, could it be that we have uh, in, been too quick to judge this, to think that we had all the answers on this? And, and, um, and so he's wrestling with Scripture from a new perspective, given his, his, the number of, of friendships and relationships and experiences he's had in the gay community. Now, I heard this talk that he gave, uh, I guess, several weeks ago on a radio show, uh, where he uh, came out and, and saying this was a viable lifestyle for, uh, for Christians, that, that a monogamous, committed relationship uh, was viable, which is just very different from just saying having promiscuous sex, whether it's uh, homosexual sex or heterosexual sex. Uh, he's saying for committed relationships, it's viable. Now, what concerns me about his answer, not so much what he said, but how he got there. Because how he got there in this radio interview was, as far as I could tell, completely a matter of saying the culture is changing. 
Uh, and therefore assuming that God's doing a different thing and therefore assuming that we've just got to change our, our perspective on this based on the culture. And I would want to passionately advocate for this, that while I understand where he's coming from, and I think our experience is always going to impact how we read scripture, that's true. But at the same time, to be a kingdom person means that, that if anything, you become suspicious of cultural norms. I mean, especially in the Anabaptist tradition, uh, which Woodland Hills really is, is, embodies, um, the kingdom is countercultural. And so we have to take great care that we're not just following the culture. We're called to buck upstream the culture and, um, and to as much as possible try to read scripture um, uh, without, the, the, without our, our reading being determined through a cultural lens. You follow me on this? And so where, where we're at is that, is, uh, honestly, as we wrestle with this, and this is an issue that we continue to wrestle with and talk about, um, that as we read it, the pattern we find throughout scripture is that God's ideal... Uh, is for marriage to be between a man and a woman, uh, a lifelong, lifelong committed monogamous relationship. That's God's ideal. It's not a matter of just having two or three verses. Like often this is like reduced to a matter of proof testing. Like there's three verses that are uh, traditionally taken to be uh, uh, against uh, homosexual behavior. And, and the whole thing is depends on that. But it's not really a matter of just two or three verses. It's a matter of discerning a pattern. And that the, the role that sex is to play as a sign of the covenant in this one flesh relationship and the role it has in society. And then uh, the New Testament becomes a pattern of Christ's relationship to the church. And so we honestly, as we read it, we can't help but say, you know, this is, is so far as we can see, God's ideal. And, and anything that falls short of that ideal is the biblical definition of sin. Hamartia is the word. It means missing the mark. Uh, and so that's... It, it, that's where we stand, and that way we would disagree with Rob Bell. But as soon as I say that, my next word would be this, that the church needs to repent of its uh, uh, really age-long prejudice uh, against gay folks and scapegoating gay folks and feeling self-righteous over against gay folks and judging gay folks. And uh, yes, just shutting the bar of the kingdom on them. And... Uh, um, it, 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 it's been tragic. We at Wilden Hills Church have, especially in the last six weeks here with this series on the kind of love and judgment, uh, our, our conviction is this. The kingdom mindset is to assume that we are the worst of sinners. Paul tells us to, to think that way, First Timothy 1. And Jesus says, if you don't want to judge, then don't be judged. And so we're not to be parasites who feed off the worth of others. We're to be a community that's defined not by what we're against, but by who we're for. And who we're for is Jesus. And before Jesus, we celebrate anybody who comes alongside of us uh, and wants to move in that direction, regardless of where they're at. And so we want to collapse this sin scale, you know, this, this traditional sin scale where you rate sins in terms of severity. And our sins always have to be the minor ones. And their sins always have to be the major ones. And then we want to pass laws against the major ones, but never against the minor ones, which are ours, even though our tend to be the ones that are much more frequently mentioned in the Bible than the ones that we tend to scapegoat on. Go figure that one out. Uh, there's just been this religious idolatry. Uh, we want to be a community where our conviction is that God alone has the wisdom to know when and how to deal with a, 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 an issue in our life or in anyone's life. And um, whether you're talking about your propensity to lust in your mind, which Jesus says is adultery, or whether it's heterosexual struggles or homosexual struggles or, or whatever the struggles are, uh, God alone knows how and when to deal with that. And he does it through community, intimate covenant community. 
And we all need to be part of that. And if we're not part of an intimate community, of a person's intimate community, then, as I've said here the last couple of weeks, our only job is to agree with God that that person was worth Jesus dying for. That's the only thing we know about them. And just to trust that God's working in their life uh, and not to have any other opinion about it. Just trust that God will be working in the community and they'll be growing as we are growing and we're all in process and, and our opinions get changed over time. And until then, we can just lo- have a love for one another that's, that's greater than our difference of... Uh, uh, of opinion, um, and, and to leave it all to God. So if you're here at church and the couple in front of you, two guys are holding hands or two gals uh, have arm around each other, that's no different than if you think that they're greedy or uh, you think that they're uh, dressed immodestly or that they are driving a car, whatever. It's not your job to have an opinion about that. You just thank God that they're here. Celebrate God that they're here. Jesus died for them. You don't have to have another thought about it. And so we want to be, while we hold to this ideal, and we can't do otherwise, we also want to be a community that is as radically embracing and inviting of all people, because God takes us where we're at, and we just trust that God's taking everybody else where they're at, and we just continue on our walk with, with, with Christ. Amen. And, uh, Amen. And not much more to add to that, except that, uh, that Greg's point about the countercultural call of the kingdom is always one that, you know, Christians love to say that. And then we tend to look back about what happened to last generation, last century. We find out that the church really did just follow the culture once again. And so, yeah, our culture is going in a particular direction now. There's some changes. I think the culture's been in a place for a long time where the church could sort of assume that the culture didn't uh, agree with, with uh, homosexuality. And so the church sort of went on this, this uh, following the culture in a negative attitude towards that community. Um, and how, how do we always check ourselves as the community of Jesus Christ and ask the question, what would, how would Jesus respond here? What does agape love look like, right? As opposed to just latching ourselves onto the culture, being drug along, and then a hundred years later going, gosh, we missed it again. Mm-hmm. And it's always tough because we're fish swimming in our culture, mm-hmm. right? So we've yeah. got to actually do the hard work of, of raising the questions together as the body of Christ and having these hard conversations together, but that's the point, is that we can do this in our our unified bond of love in Jesus Christ, we should be able to ask these questions without triggering our amygdalas and going into fight or flight mode with each other and just having honest conversations about this stuff. And so we hope Woodland Hills is a place where we can do that. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Um, I guess I can repeat that question. Is, did you say, is sexual sin the same as any other sin? Yeah, in, in terms of this motif of, of collapsing judgment, it is. Uh, we, we wanted, look, at if our attitude, Paul says, here's a saying that is, is acceptable for everyone to embrace. This is uh, a, a, a saying that all kingdom people should have. That Jesus Christ came in this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And that's without qualification. Then Jesus says, why are you looking for a dust particle in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your eye? Now, if I maintain that attitude, so any sin I see in somebody else is, is a mere dust particle compared to my own sin, which is a tree trunk coming out of my eye, or that any sin I see in another, I know that I am, my sin is much worse. That's just the, the mindset to have. Then it won't matter whether it's a sexual sin 
or a, a sin of hoarding too many resources, uh, or being greedy, or of, of, of having apathy towards the poor, or of gossiping, or of slander, or of self-righteousness, or whatever. It doesn't matter, because my sin's worse. And that just kind of ends that, that issue. Uh, and, th- and that frees you now to be able to love and embrace people uh, wherever they're at, as God does with you. Amen. If the story of the snake in the garden in Genesis 3 doesn't need to be taken literally, what stops people from applying that same logic to the resurrection of Jesus? Why not say the resurrection is just a literary framework? All right. Good question. Go for it, Paul. All right. Thank you, Greg. Take it away. All right. Next question, please. <laughs> no, no, no you have is... to answer. <laughs> We had a question last night um, about uh, Genesis account of creation and um, dinosaurs and that sort of thing. And oftentimes the phrase literary framework can come into the conversation here because one of the theories of how to read Genesis 1 is called the literary framework theory, which proposes that the author of Genesis, in laying out the, the six days of creation, wasn't thinking in terms of, of a, a chronological literalness there, but was actually using the word day and then the series of a week to organize his thoughts around how God came against the powers of darkness and chaos in the ancient world and brought uh, really order out of chaos. Now, I think some people's fear is that if you kind of go with that sort of less than literal reading of Genesis chapter 1, well then couldn't you just take anything in the Bible and say that's just metaphor or that's figurative or that's literary framework, for example, even the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's been pretty clear, you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then our faith is, is we, are, we are of all people most to be pitied, because that's, that's a linchpin, that had to be a, a historical cornerstone. And I think probably the most important thing to say about this is this is not just a sort of a willy-nilly decision one makes. One, one doesn't come to Scripture and go, well, what would I like this to be? You know, what will be most easy for me if this is literal or figurative? Rather, the question of literal or metaphor or figurative is always a matter of genre or type of literature, right? Um, so when I go to the Psalms, for example, and I read that God... Um, hides me under the shadow of his wing. Um, I think I should know that once I've hit that genre, which happens to be Hebrew poetry, that I don't have to spend a lot of time with the question, is God like a cosmic chicken, really, up there somehow? (laughs) That's not the point, right? The point of poetry is to move you from the literalness of the statement to an analog. God isn't a cosmic chicken, but he's like a chicken, who, who covers the chicks with, with his protective wing. That's the point, right? Um, so why do we know that we shouldn't move to the resurrection and just go, oh, maybe it's like the, the Genesis creation account and less than literal? Well, because the text that we find the resurrection in, gospel, epistle, the letters of Paul, that genre is, is historical narrative in the gospels, and as Paul, in, in, in his letters, referring back to historical narrative in the Gospels. And so that's a, that's a really important category distinction. You know, creation text, which in the ancient world did have a lot of metaphorical stuff in it. Historical narrative, uh, which is you know, like a, a history textbook uh, sort of thing would be something in our ana- world would be analogous. That stuff is claiming real things happened in space and time. So uh, just how we read... 
And that, that's part of our problem is so many of us today come to the Bible, right? And it's devotion time and it's like we know how to do devotions. Dear God, what should I read today? You know? And rarely do we stop to ask the question when we open to whatever page we do, stop. What is the genre? What kind of literature did I just open to? If I open to Genesis, that's different than Leviticus, that's different than Psalms, that's different than Gospel, that's different than Paul's letters. All different types of literature. And we need to know how those rules apply. Which means, if you have a Bible, you should probably have right next to it a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. Because what they do, and there's other books like that, but they just take every genre of scripture and give us helpful interpretive principles. How do you deal with this particular type of genre? Really, really good book. Now, the uh, um, one thing I realize is that, that the sort of enamoration with literalness is a fairly recent phenomenon. It, sometimes people think that if you take the, the, the snake uh, or in, in Genesis uh, 3 as figurative or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the story as a whole, if you take that as being more symbolic than literal, well, then you're not taking the Bible seriously and that, that, that denotes that you've been influenced by liberalism or something. And that's a, a recent new problem of the church. But in fact, go back and read the early church fathers. And even before them, rabbis, and you'll find that many of them uh, viewed this as being legendary. It's a symbolic thing. Um, now, it doesn't mean that it's not the Word of God or that you should take it less seriously. Not at all. It's all the Word of God, and so it all must be taken seriously. The question is, is what kind of literature is it? Um, and as Paul just showed, we, uh, we have to make that decision all the time uh, throughout the Bible. Even those who say, I believe the Bible's all literal God, word of God. Well, they don't. No one does because no one thinks that God's a chicken or that the earth is held up by four pillars uh, and that the sky is, is made of iron, uh, though that's what ancient people believe and you find that in the Bible. We, we instinctively take some of this as being symbolic. So C.S. Lewis is great on this as well in Mere Christianity. He goes, you know, I, I have a love for all, mytho- for all myth, but especially the myth, myths that are in Scripture. Um, and and he, there are some kinds of literature that he, he diagnoses being legendary or, or mythic. But, it, but he argues that myth can sometimes express truths more profoundly than straightforward uh, literature in the same way that an expressionistic portrait can say more about, say, a tree than a snapshot of the tree can. You see? And so uh, it's not a matter of taking it less literally. It's just a matter of saying what kind of literature is it and uh, what, what, should, uh, what kind of lessons should we draw from it. And the final thing I'll just say is this. What's important, and I mentioned this last night as well. I was one of those, as many of us, I think, were, where I was taught when I first came to Christ, that if Adam and Eve and the, the snake in the garden, if it's not all literal, and if Genesis 1 was in literal six days, well, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. If that's, if that's just symbolic, well, then maybe the resurrection is symbolic, and, and it's all just mythology. And so then I, my first class at the University of Minnesota was a course on uh, uh, um, an introduction to evolutionary biology. And I went in having read three whole books on, uh, on creationism against evolution. I'd never read so much on one topic in my life. So I was sure, being the uh, underconfident uh, and insecure person that I am, that I was going to convert the professor and save the whole class from the lie of evolution with my three books. So I went in there with uh, what come in Morris and the Genesis Flood, my book there, and every time the professor would make a point, I'd object, and I'd argue this, and he'd just slice me up. And then I'd make another objection, and he'd slice me up. And halfway through the semester, my faith was starting to really crumble. And then shortly after the class, it did crumble. Went through the most miserable year of my life. All that is to say this. 
that all came because I was taught that everything hangs upon taking this literally. And then when I became convinced that there's something going on with evolution, and the earth does not look like it's 10,000 years old, and, and all of that, well then, um, then I had to throw the whole Bible out. And that, that is tragic. Whether you take the snake as being literal or figurative, the Genesis 1 account literal, I don't care. But please, never make your view the hurdle that someone has to jump over to get into the kingdom. Because that just bars all sort of thinking people from the, 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 having a life in Christ uh, for a reason that's no more significant than what color your hair is, for crying out loud. No, uh, I don't put hurdles in front of people. There's, if, if ever there's room for a difference of opinion, it's on issues like this. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, great questions, you guys. Loved it. I, I, I love this kind of way of doing stuff. I just, I, I, I just think it's fun. Plus, I get bored listening to myself talk all the time. This is just, it, it, it's so interesting to have Paul up here. Isn't he great? Isn't he great? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's so modest. I, I, I just appreciate it. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be doing this again in about a month or so. So if your question wasn't answered and may get answered a month from now, you can keep on sending in questions when you've got it. We want to be uh, a church that just takes these on and addresses these. It's a great way to learn. So uh, keep, keep uh, sending in your questions, and we'll get to another round of this. With that in mind, Paul, would you do us the honor of closing? It didn't do better, but Vanessa do a great job. Yep. <laughs> another spectacular person. Thank you, Greg. Oh, he's so wonderful. So chipper. Um, and then can we have the uh, prayer teams come up here as we close in prayer? And if you're here this morning, have any need whatsoever that could use some prayer, please come up here and spend some time with these folks. Uh, we want to be a body that ministers to the body uh, and trusting God to bring uh, healing and comfort and anything else you need into your life. So could we stand? Uh, prayer team, come forward. And Paul, close us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for... This chance to come together, Lord, we thank you. You've um, called us to be a community here, Lord, that can raise questions, that can talk about things that our culture says not to talk about. Mm. And that we can do it, Lord, without judgments, without activating amygdalas, Lord, but just hell asking you, Lord God, to, to um, work in us and through us, through these kind of dialogues, Lord, to pursue truth together to love each other as we do that, and to learn what it means to humbly um, pursue you in a community, Lord God, where differences of opinion emerge. Lord, I just pray for each of my brothers and sisters as we go from this place, Lord. Uh, work in us, work through us, Lord, and continue to build your kingdom in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Father's Day. Go out and love on the world.